Jesus has manifested Himself to the woman at the well. He revealed to her who that He was. She had no way of knowing that otherwise. The Lord has uh, showed Himself to her. She's believed. So there was enough in His speech, in His manner of speaking that persuaded her and persuaded this woman not just to believe it in her mind or in her head, but that this woman who was an adulteress living with a man that was not her husband, having had five husbands, a a woman that was a woman of shame in the city, yet she's going to run through the streets of the city saying, come and meet this man that's told me everything I've ever done. She was persuaded that this was the Messiah. You know, you can say, well, Jesus' word, that was enough for that. But have you ever seen anybody believe with just word of the mouth? There's a grace of God that's working in the heart that is persuading a man to believe the gospel. And so the grace of God must have been working in her. So she's run back to the city and uh, she's telling the men, come and see this man. And while that's going on, while she's in the city... Uh, the disciples are speaking with the Lord and they said, Master, eat. And he said, I have meat to eat that you know not of. And if you remember how many times already we've seen the Lord say things that that we understand because we're blessed with uh, after the fact and the Holy Ghost of God to dwell within us. We have understanding of what he means here. He's talking about the work of God. What what fills him, what brings him joy. He's going to set aside the fleshly things that the work of God might be done and be accomplished. But the disciples didn't know what he was talking about. And they said, has somebody brought him bread? If you remember Nicodemus, when Jesus said, you must be born again, he said, am I going back into my mother's womb? When Jesus said, I'm going to destroy this temple, they said, this thing took... Uh, years to build and you're going to do it in three days nobody sees the spiritual side of it everyone is hung up in the natural and in the carnal and outside of the working of the spirit of God that's where man stays salvation to mankind is a trip to an altar and a doing better in my life joining the church I've been baptized I've been a good person And it's all natural. The work of God's excluded. But you know, real Bible salvation, that work of God, that birth from above, that's the necessary part. But without the Holy Ghost, that'll always be left out. Salvation will always be a trip to an altar and a doing better. So the Lord's going to explain to the disciples... what he meant here in verse 34 we'll pick up and I know we'll be covering some stuff we already have but that's okay Jesus saith unto him them my meat is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work say not ye there are yet four months and then cometh harvest behold I say unto you lift up your eyes and look on the fields for they are white already to harvest And he that reapeth receiveth wages and gathereth fruit unto life eternal, that both he that soweth and he that reapeth may rejoice together. And herein is that saying true, one soweth and another reapeth. 
I send you to reap whereon you bestowed no labor. Other men have labored, and ye have entered into their labors. So we'll look at these together. So the Lord's meat is to finish the work of God. That's His mission. To accomplish or to finish, that's the meaning of that word there. And He's got a work that, if you believe the Bible, was given to Him before the foundation of the world. He was given this work. It was laid out before Him. And all this before there ever was a world that was created, the Father had given Him His task. And He has come now at this time to finish that work. And the Lord says, that's what is important, that I accomplish the work that God has given me to do. So He says... We're going to get a little parable. Say not ye, there's yet four months. So if, if you plant today, if it's early spring and you plant, you're going to say, well, I'm going to harvest in just a few months. And that's the natural way of life. That's the way it is in the flesh. We don't sow and harvest at the same time. There's a space of time and there's a season for all things. But Jesus says now, spiritually, you can't say that there's yet four months and then cometh harvest. You know what that does? Well, I don't need to do anything right now. That work's coming later. I'll worry about that when that time comes. But in the kingdom of God, there is no downtime. So in, in Luke 10, you'll see this. The harvest truly is great, but the laborers are few. Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest that He would send forth laborers into His harvest. Go your ways. Behold, I send you forth as lambs among wolves. He's sending out His disciples, His followers here to go preach the gospel. You know what's needed? There's needed to be labor put into the field. Jesus says here, don't say there's four months. Look on the fields. Behold, open your eyes and look. The fields are white already to harvest. And I believe it was Joel maybe. I think I wrote it down. Probably going to get ahead of myself just a little. One of the prophets prophesied of a day that was coming that the sowers and the reapers were going to be right on each other's tail. That as the reaper reaped, the sower sowed, and there were reapers behind the sowers. You know, that's the way the work of God is. There's no downtime. There's no place for uh, uh, us to relax and say, well, it's not time for us to labor yet. But in the kingdom of God, the Word of God is to be sowed, and it's to be sowed day by day. The reapers are to be reaping, and they reap day by day. There's no downtime, no time to quit, no time to rest. And if I am resting spiritually, if I lay down my, uh, my duty unto God the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, and I rest in the Spirit... See, and those things are so confused. So confused. Because in the flesh we're at church, we're not resting. And yet, in the Spirit, we can be in the church and be resting. Be snoozing be sleeping. I'm not talking about in the flesh either. That can happen too. But in the spirit, to be disengaged, to be disinterested, to be without love and without care 
to have no desire to draw any closer to God, no desire to understand more of the Word, no desire to hear what's being said, no real desire to get on our knees and get a hold of God, no real pressing needs in our lives, no, absolutely no desire to know anything more about the Word of God. Does that happen? Yeah, I believe it happens. But you know, there's really, there's not time for that to be. There's no time for them that are God's children to be in that condition. The fields are white, all ready to harvest. It's time now to be laboring and be in the field. It's time now to be about as the Lord is, His Father's business. See, people equate this as, well, you've got to be out saving them. But see, the Lord says, I've got a work to do of my Father, and I must accomplish that. And you've got a work to do of the Father, and you've got to accomplish that. So the Lord says, there's no time to rest. There's no time for me to sit here and be weary and do nothing. But there's a Word of God to go out. And so for us, don't say there's four months and then I'm going to work for the Lord then I'm going to put my time in for the Lord. Because look at the fields. Look at the condition of the harvest. They are white already. And he that reapeth receiveth wages and gathereth fruit unto life eternal, that both he that reapeth and soweth may rejoice together. So I want you to notice how that's worded. It doesn't say that He's gathering fruit and receiving wages. He's receiving wages and gathering fruit. Sounds to me like the reaper's paid up front. Wouldn't you say that's the way it sounds? And really, that's, that's the way God's children, that's the way they're paid. They're paid up front. Before you ever reap in the field, you're going to be adopted into the family of God. You're going to be added to the will if you'll have it. You're going to be an inheritor of all God's goods. And man thinks now that, well, if I do this, God's going to owe me this because of it. When of a truth the indebtedness that we are to God for visiting us in our filth and in our iniquity, delivering us out of that, placing us as children of God, washing our sins from off of our back, putting His righteousness upon our account, giving us eternal security and peace with God Almighty. What amount of labor are you going to do before you pay that one back? That'll never be paid back, will it? So then, if I can't pay that one back, how much work am I going to do that God's going to owe me something else on top of what He's already given me? If you're not careful, you can delve into a works-based service unto God where you're now trusting in what you're doing and it's me that's getting things done. And glory, the devil enjoys that. Because the glory is moved from 
God the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, and it's moved to men and women. It's moved to a church. It's moved to an individual. The individual gets the glory for what they've done. They did it and God paid them for it. When the truth is, I've already been paid so much, I should labor all the days of my life for the one that saved me. Not for extra wages, but because I love Him for what He's done for me. And so, he that reapeth receiveth wages and gathereth fruit unto life eternal. So Matthew 19, verse 29. The disciples there, the rich young ruler, he's turned and walked away sorrowful. And Peter said, we've forsaken everything to follow you. What do we get? So in Matthew 19, 29, everyone that hath forsaken houses or brethren, or sisters, or father, or mother, or wife, or children, or lands, for my name's sake, shall receive an hundredfold, and shall inherit everlasting life. Now does that mean now, that if I forsake a wife, I'm going to get to marry a hundred of them? Does that mean if I forsake a house, God's going to give me a hundred of them? Do you think that happened with any of the apostles? They did forsake everything. They forsook all that they had to follow Jesus. Did Peter get a hundred fishing businesses? See, you can get real silly if you're going to make it carnal and about the flesh. But I'm going to tell you what Peter received, especially by the time that he died. But I believe on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit filled his heart and life, from that day forward what Peter had satisfied him more than if he had a hundredfold of everything else. See, he did give up things. But God made up for it with the working of the Spirit of God in His life. And just as the Lord Jesus, His flesh was satisfied by doing the work of the Father and not by eating the bread, well, that don't make sense. If you're going to be really, if you're going to be happy, you're going to have to eat something. But see, what brought Jesus joy was doing the will of the Father, not eating the natural bread. And so Peter, Peter's going to lose everything he's got naturally, but he's going to be the happiest that he's ever been in his life. If he loses a house, he's going to have the joy of having a hundred of them. Not in possession at the register of deeds, but in his heart the joy of the Lord within him is going to bring completeness unto him. So you see, there's, there's our wages. I'm not working so God will give me a promotion on the job, but we labor for God knowing that the joy is through Him anyway. No matter what we have in the flesh, never, never be satisfied in the flesh. I said that last week, and that's the truth. It's temporary. It's momentary. 
No satisfaction there. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, For though I preach the gospel, I have nothing to glory of, for of necessity is laid upon me. Yea, woe is unto me if I preach not the gospel. For if I do this thing willingly, I have a reward. But if against my will, a dispensation of the gospel is committed unto me. Paul, the apostle, was a great preacher. And as far as I'm concerned, one of, if not the very best, men of God dedicated to the work, preaching the word of God, and he writes in the book, by the inspiration of the Spirit, that he's got nothing to glory of. Now if it was Paul's wisdom, and if it was Paul's hard work, and Paul's study above and beyond everybody else, would he not have something to glory of? That's what man wants. He wants to be able to say, I did this, and that's why I am. Paul the apostle could not say that. Though I preach, I can't glory in that. If it wasn't for God, he'd still be persecuting the church. So there's no place for Paul to glory. Everything that he is, God has made him to be that. And listen, for of necessity, this was God that laid this on Paul. Paul didn't choose to do this. Did he? Was Paul praying to God, I'd I'd like to be an apostle? Or did God strike him down and then tell Ananias, go tell him what he's going to suffer? He ain't got a choice in this. This is what he's going to do. This is the work that I've got for him and he's going to do that work. Now, if he does it willingly, he receives a reward. The blessing and favor of God. Would you not say that's, I mean, in context. But if against His will. So you see, one way or the other, God's getting it out of Him. If against His will, yea, a dispensation of the gospel is laid upon me. I believe you can see the picture of this in the book of Jonah. Jonah was a prophet of the Lord. The Lord gave Jonah a job to do. And Jonah did not want to do that job. And Jonah said, I'm going to do everything I can to go the other way and not do what God has commanded me to do. Did that work? Jonah did not want to do it. But you know what God did? God brought him down to a place that Jonah wanted to do it to get out of where he was. So God brought him out of the whale's belly. God told him the second time, go down to Nineveh. And Jonah went this time, but he still wasn't happy about it, was he? He went and he preached, and the people believed and they repented. There was a one... I mean, you talk about revival. Here's a revival of an entire city of pagans repenting and turning to God and Jonah sitting on a hill 
under a gourd, bitter and whining and waiting on God to burn them up. Did Jonah want to do it? No. He did it though, but there was no joy for him. And if we're not careful, we'll fall into the attitude and the place that God's work that He has for us, there will be no joy in doing that. It will be a burden. It will be a strain. It will be sorrow unto us. But it doesn't have to be that way. Paul says, God's getting it out of me one way or the other. You believe God's going to get it out of you one way or the other? I do. I, I believe that He will. So why not submit ourselves to the will of God and give ourselves to the work that He has for us? In 1 Corinthians 3, who then is Paul and who is Apollos, but ministers by whom you believed, even as the Lord gave to every man. So the Corinthians, they're having a hard time. They're, they're babes and they're carnal. Their mind is always as pertains to the flesh and fleshly things. And because of that, they're always in competition with everybody else and with people on the inside. Who's doing the most? See, I, I only wear pants and you wear shorts. I mean, you can get very silly very quickly. And don't act like that's surprising. That's the way it is in religion today. I'm more religious and I'm more better than you are. So Paul says, now in reality, some saying, I believed under Paul. Some saying, well, Apollos was preaching when I believed and he's a better speaker than Paul is. And the guy over here says, yeah, but Paul's an apostle and Apollos isn't an apostle. Yeah, but Apollos was saved when Peter was preaching. And they're always button heads. Who's the best and who's better? Paul says, let me ask you this. Who is Paul and who is Apollos? What are they? What are they? What's, what am I and what are you? I mean, in the truth of it, we are wicked and rebellious sons and daughters of Adam that God showed mercy on. And if you take the mercy of God out, we're all dead without hope. I mean, what, what is Paul and Apollos but ministers by whom you believed even as the Lord gave to every man? Now God chose the, the preaching of the gospel is the means that people enter into the kingdom of God. That was God's choice. And you know, everyone that believes God's given a minister to preach the gospel unto them. And Paul's saying, all that I was was the man that God used the day that He called you. Does that make you any better than anybody else? Does it matter who was preaching when God called me? You know what matters is that God called me. Get your eyes off of the natural side and recognize Paul and Apollos and every other man had nothing to do with this. That's right. 
recognize that it was God that called you and be thankful to Him for that work. I have planted and Apollos watered. Did they work? They did work. They were planting, they were watering, they were preaching and teaching and expounding the Word of God. But the fruit that came from that, they had no place in producing it. God gave the increase. So neither is he that planteth anything. Oh, he's something. It may not be much, but it's something. That's not what the Bible says. The planter is not anything. Neither is he that watereth, but it's God that gives the increase. You know that Paul the Apostle went to places and preached the gospel and there was multitudes that did not believe him. You know how often that happens? Those that want to boast. Well, we had a dozen saved under my preaching. Those that want to boast in themselves. They don't tell you about all the ones that didn't believe. About all the ones that didn't stay with the church. No. Those are conveniently forgotten. But Paul's saying this, I'm nothing. Apollos is nothing. He mentions Cephas in 1 Corinthians. That's Peter. Peter is nothing. It's God that is doing the work. If there are people that are genuinely saved, the man behind the pulpit did not have anything to do with that work. He's preaching the Word. That's his job, to preach the Word. He does that because God laid that on him of necessity. But the work of conviction and the work of drawing and the work of making new creatures, God gave that increase. So give that glory to the one who it's due. All we are is laborers in the vineyard. The Lord of the harvest, He gets all the glory for everything that's done. But we ought to be thankful for the job that He's given us in His kingdom. Well, mine's insignificant. You know, in Boaz's field, he had maidens to draw water. He had reapers to reap. And he had those that come by to collect the sheaves. It don't matter where you're at, how wonderful it was to be in Boaz's field. And Ruth, she's a gleaner. She's orphaned, homeless, and poor. And yet she's in the field of Boaz. And the blessing of Boaz is upon her. And so thank God that, that we are as we are. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, for what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing are not even ye in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at His coming. What is the joy and crown of rejoicing? The work and the labor that God has allowed us to take part in. And so here, Jesus says, 
He that reapeth receiveth wages, gathereth fruit unto eternal life, that both he that soweth and he that reapeth may rejoice together, to be full of cheer, calmly happy, well off. So what's going on? Well, as they labor and as they are working in the field of the Father, and souls are being saved, are they doing that? No, they're not doing that. But they are a laborer in the field when one is delivered. You know what the church gets to do in that work? Rejoice. Have great joy that God the Father has delivered another soul from darkness. Do I glory in me? Does the church get to say, boy, we, we prayed that and through. If you're not careful, you'll think that. That it's you that done it. Well, what about all the other ones that are lost? You better get busy. If you prayed one in, you better get busy because there's a thousand more just like them that you'd better pray in. But boy, we conveniently forget about all them that are unregenerate. We want credit for the ones that are saved, but we don't have anything to do with them that are lost. That don't work. Doesn't work. No, I tell you, we lay a grievous burden on men and women's backs. We tell them they've got to do it. You've got to labor. You've got to go without sleep. You'd better be going without eating. You'd better be carrying the burden. You'd better work. And then I go home and sit down at the table and fill myself and go to bed and I rest just fine. Is that not what the Pharisees and scribes were doing? I want you to notice something. In all four of the Gospels, you're going to find it just like this. There might be a chapter break in one or two of them. But you're going to find the story of the woman, the little widow woman, coming to the temple. It's in all four Gospels. They're giving their money down at the treasury. She throws in two mites. Everything she's got. The least probably that's given, but she's cast in, the Bible says, all her living. Jesus says that widow woman that's got nothing has given more in comparison to what she's got than everybody else that's given. But here's what's not noticed a lot of times. That scripture's taken and said, well, you better throw in everything you got. That's easy for a man with a sack full of gold at the house to come in and throw a, you know what I'm saying? You see what I'm saying? But in the next verses, Jesus says, the day's coming that there won't be one stone left upon another here. In all four places where the widow woman is mentioned, the next verses are Jesus declaring the destruction of that place. See, it's easy for man with plenty to ride the widow and the poor and the fatherless, to ride them into the dirt and me never worry about that myself one bit. But Jesus done away with that establishment and that established religion that man gloried in. And today it is in Jesus and in Him alone. It is. 
So you, you look at the Gospels and see if that's not the case. So they get to rejoice and be glad, though they're only laborers. And well, I'm waiting on God to pay me. You've already been paid. The time of retirement and rest is coming, and you don't have to worry about that. When we lay it down, we're going to be with the Father forevermore. I, I, I ought to work because of what He's already done. So they rejoice together, and herein is that saying true, one soweth and another reapeth. So listen to this. Divided labor with no room for glory. He's going to tell these men here, I'm sending you to reap whereon you bestowed no labor. Other men have labored and you've entered into their labors. So they're going to go and preach the gospel. And you know what the the disciples are going to preach? They're going to preach the Old Testament. Did they write that Old Testament? I mean, we they're preaching something that somebody else has wrote down. And they're going to preach by the Holy Spirit. Did they bring down that Holy Spirit? See, what they're doing is they're entering into a work that's been going on since before the foundation of the world. It's not like they're the first one that's ever started. Men... Men get to the place that they think they're the only ones that have the Holy Spirit and can preach the Word of God. I've heard it said you ought not read anything else. You just you do it yourself. Boy, that, that's puffed with pride in one's abilities. But I'm going to tell you what I am. I'm a small piece in a work that's been going on for thousands of years on the earth and that really began before the foundation of the world in the mind and in the heart of God Almighty. And you can say, well, that's opinion. You've got no proof of that before the foundation of the world. But that's ignorance of the Bible is what that is. Because as you heard in 2 Timothy chapter 1, it's quite plain that this grace of God that saved me was given to me before the foundation of the world. And so divided work. So if you think about the disciples or the apostles that on the day of Pentecost are going to begin their work of preaching, they're entering into the labors of of Adam, of Seth, of Noah, of the Moses and the law, and of the prophets, and John the Baptist who was before them, and even the Lord Jesus Christ, the great forerunner, they're stepping in and following in the labor that those men began. So that what's reaped by their work, they didn't do all of the work before. There was somebody else that was sowing. Somebody else come through and weeded it. I'm telling you, God made a way that there's no way one man can glory in anything. And so, if you think about the apostles and at Pentecost, they reaped the work and the sowing of all of those men before them.
And we today, we've not entered in and had to clear off a new field. We've entered into the work that the Lord began. And we're continuing that work. And that work will continue. Ye are entered in to their labors. And many of the Samaritans of that city believed on him for the saying of the woman, which testified, he told me, all that ever I did. So we're going back and forth in the narrative. You've seen Jesus and the Samaritan conversing with one another. She runs off to the city. While she's in the city testifying, the disciples are talking with Jesus. Now we're moving from Jesus and the disciples back to Samaria. And here's the woman. She's been running through the city. And many of the Samaritans of that city believe for her saying. So she is testifying. Remember what kind of woman this is. She's testifying and the city is believing what she is saying. Do you not reckon that there's some grace working there as well? Her words are salted with fire, wouldn't you say? Here's a woman that the God's truth people are going to jeer at. Women are going to draw away from her. And men are going to look down on her. And yet, she's got words here and many of the Samaritans believed for she testified to be a witness, to testify, to give evidence. That same word. You know how that word's used previous? John the Baptist, he was called a, he gave testimony. Same word, same Greek word. To give evidence. She's going to be a laborer in the field of God just like John the Baptist was. Evangelizing the city. Her words are going to bring the men out of the city. So they believe what she says. So when the Samaritans were come unto him, they besought him that he would tarry with them. And he abode there two days. So they believed now. They believed her word enough that they came out of the city to the well where Jesus was and they besought him. They inquired. They asked him if he would stay with them for a couple days. We want to hear what you've got to say. We would like for you to teach us and to show us some things. There's some persuasion there, wouldn't you say? They believed her testimony enough to come out and ask this man to tarry and abide with them. So in John chapter 1 verse 35, remember this. The next day after John stood and two of his disciples and looking upon Jesus as he walked, he saith, Behold the Lamb of God. There, his two disciples, we believe to be John and Andrew, they followed Jesus at John's testimony. On down, John chapter 1 verse 41, He findeth his own brother Simon and saith, We found the Messiah. Remember Andrew went to Peter and told Peter, we found him, and Peter comes to the Lord Jesus. If you remember in verse 45, Philip comes to Nathanael and saith unto him, we have found him of whom Moses and the law spoke. And Nathanael comes to Jesus. 
And here the Samaritan woman is going to run into her city and she's going to testify of who Jesus is and the city's going to come out to the Lord Jesus. Is it a work of the grace of God? It absolutely is. But do you see how the work's being accomplished? Through men and through women. Who's to say? Now, the devil says your words don't mean anything. And I would imagine that that would be the thought that would come through this woman's mind. And yet God blesses her words greatly. They believe and they come out of the city and seek after. So listen to this, and this is Deuteronomy 6, verse 7. Thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children, shalt talk of them when thou enterest into thine house, when thou walkest by the way, when thou liest down, and when thou risest up. So what's the duty? Teach it. Talk of it. Bear witness to it. Live it day by day. Walk in the words of Almighty God. Because you can't discount or cast away anybody. A word fitly spoken is like apples of gold and pitchers of silver. All it takes is God to stir on our words. And this adulterous Samaritan woman can bring a whole city to the feet of the Lord Jesus. So the Samaritans come in Genesis 19 verse 14. And Lot went out and spake unto his sons-in-law, which married his daughters, and said, Get up, get you out of the place, for the Lord will destroy the city. But he seemed as one that mocked unto his sons-in-law. So the city believes this woman, and Lot's family doesn't believe him. Why? How did he live? How was she living though? She hadn't moved out yet, I wouldn't imagine. Best they know, she went out of the city to draw water and she's living with a man married to another woman. Now Lot, the Bible says in seeing and hearing, but he didn't partake in their evil deeds. But his righteous soul was vexed. So he didn't look on it with joy either. You ever, you ever see a commercial or see a billboard or see something on the sidewalk and it just vexes? That's what, that's what it says of Lot. His soul was vexed by the evil that he saw. You see something and you just want to look away from it. You just can't look at the evil. The evil in Sodom vexed Lot's righteous soul. Now you can tell me that Lot lived in sin and was living it up. You've got no Bible to back that up. In seeing and hearing, he vexed himself. But it doesn't say that he partook in any of the sins of Sodom. And his own family would not believe his word. And here's an adulterous woman 
that the city believes her word? Is everybody going to believe they're not? They're not going to believe. If everybody was going to believe, then Jesus would have never needed to say that many are on the broad way that leads to destruction and few are on the narrow way that leads to life. Everywhere you look through the New Testament, the majority and the great number are going to destruction. And the remnant or the few are on the right way going to life. What makes the words to matter? Did Lot mean what he was saying? Was he serious? Did Lot want them to come out of the city? I believe yes to all of those questions. In Colossians 4, let your speech be always with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer every man. You know what's needed? This grace of God upon our speech. That's the difference. Saying words, that doesn't change hearts. You can say words that are mean, that are harsh. Some folks think, if I hit them hard enough with it, that'll get them to turn. Lot said, this, God's going to burn this place up. And they thought he was joking. You see, it's a joke. It is, it's a joke. You warn, you can speak, you can say over and over, you can be harsh, and to them it's a joke. And you're a joke for even mentioning something so foolish. But when the Spirit and power of God is working... That's not too funny then anymore. God turns the heart in a way that the words of man is unable to do. We'll stop right there.